Let me say a prayer for us, and we'll kind of jump into this tonight. This is an interesting, interesting lesson. Lord, thank you for the country in which we live. We're grateful that we can come to study your word, We're grateful that we can worship freely. We don't take those privileges for granted. Father, you know we would worship you under any circumstances, as Christians do throughout the world and do in places of great persecution and hardship, and we pray for them. Father, I thank you for the country in which we live, and I pray for our leaders. I pray for peace in this world, and I pray that they would be peacemakers in this world. Father, strengthen them and turn their hearts toward you. In Christ's name, amen. I need to do two housekeeping announcements first. On this campus, the Oklahoma City campus, uh, by the way, just in general, this, we will do chapters 13 and 14. Next Wednesday, we'll do chapters 15 and 16, and that will be the end of the Gospel of Mark, and it's the end of all of our programming here at Oklahoma City, and we'll take off then until July. So let me tell you now, because it was a great question last week, because a lot of people that are with us aren't, don't, don't physically attend church here, and we'll have this on the web, but let me just tell you, we will take off through June, because we have camps, we have VBS, uh, we got all kinds of activities here, but in July... We'll have a four-week lesson in here, July 10th, 17th, 24th, 31st. July 10th, 17th, 24th, 31. And then in August, we will kick off a new semester. So that's kind of what our schedule will be. And next week will be our uh, last lesson of this semester, and we'll finish the Gospel of Mark. But because it's the last Wednesday of the semester next week, we will have a special student ministry and children's activities out on the grounds. So there'll be about 500,000 children running around outside. And so what they're gonna do for safety is close one of our parking lots. We, we, you'll be able to get here just fine, but I suspect several of you park in this lot. So I wanna show you which lot will be closed. Do I have a map? Of course I have a map. This is a map of where we are we are sitting right uh, here in the venue, right there. And I know many of you, if you come in from 150th, you come in here and want to go into this lot. They're going to have that closed off because they'll have all kinds of kid activities. Of course, you can get in many other ways, you know, come around. Just, I just wanted to let you know when you get there, if you see the cones, it's for the kid activities. And it's a great idea just to make sure there's safety. We don't want a lot of kids running around, a lot of cars going through. So hopefully, I don't think it'll inconvenience you very much. So... That's next week when we'll finish the Gospel of Mark. Then we'll pick back up in July with a four-week series, okay? So those are kind of the housekeeping announcements. Chapter 13 of Mark, and I'm going to focus mainly on chapter 13, is the longest stretch in the Gospel of Mark of Jesus' teaching. If you remember, and I, I know I say this every week, but I think if you get the repetition, you'll remember this a long time. The first eight chapters, half, of the Gospel of Mark, he's really interested, he's writing down what Peter was preaching, and Peter is very interested in making sure they knew that Jesus was not just some holy man, he wasn't just some good philosopher, he came with power. It's all about the miracles of Jesus, how, I mean, all the people that he healed, when you go back and read that, he's healing people, he's literally got command over nature, he has command over the spiritual realm, the demons that he can cast out. And so the first part is Jesus is powerful. Then right in the middle of the Gospel of Mark, right around chapter 9, 10, 11, you see Jesus coming into conflict, conflict as he moves to Jerusalem with the authorities. And they want to know 
who gave you the authority to do these things and be preaching this? And they wanted to hold on to their power. Well, the interesting thing is they had temporal power in the sense that they kind of had the people, the Jewish people, kind of subservient to them. They had to come to the temple, and if you came to the temple, you had to listen to the priests. Jesus is the one who really had power. And what happens is you're going to see Jesus use his power to serve us. He's going to humble himself and go to the cross. And so you see the proper use of power is really not oppressing people, it is serving people. That's one of the powerful lessons in the Gospel of Mark. I want to show you that Jesus didn't go to the cross because he was weak. He didn't go to the cross because he couldn't do anything about it. He didn't go to the cross because, oh, the Romans are so powerful. He had all the power, but he chose to humble himself and serve us and save us. So that's kind of what's going on in the first half. Then as we go on, you see the conflict happening between Jesus and the ruling authorities. And he begins to teach, and they come try to, remember in our last lesson, they're trying to constantly get him to say something that they can put him in jail for. And they can't quite trap him. Well, in chapter 13, he's leaving the temple. Let's open it up here in 13, 1 through 4. As he was leaving the temple, this is like when we finished what we did in our last lesson. He's finished talking to the chief priests and the scribes who are trying to trap him, and they all decided, we're not asking this guy any more questions. He's just brilliant. So as they're leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And Jesus replied, do you see all these great buildings? And they were great. I'm going to show you as best I can uh, in just a minute. Not one stone here will be left on top of another one. Everything will be thrown down. And they left, they went across to the Mount of Olives, and as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, some of the disciples, asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? I mean, it shook their world. The temple was I mean, unbelievable in the ancient world. Herod had done an unbelievable job, and he said, you know, it is magnificent, but not one of these stones will be left on top of the other. Let's look into the temple just a little bit. Uh, this may be a little review for you, but it's really pretty interesting. What's going to happen to the temple, let me just, I'm going to say this once now, once in the middle, and once at the end. What's going to happen to the temple is what Jesus just said Think of this as 30 or 33 AD. I mean, it's hard to know exactly the date Jesus was uh, crucified. And this is like two days before he's going to be crucified. The temple is totally destroyed in 70 AD. So in 37 years, completely destroyed. Not one stone left on another, exactly as Jesus said, by the Romans. There are several things happening here. And he's, made, he's going to, in chapter 13, start talking about the destruction of the temple. And at the same time, he's going to be talking about the end of the world. And in fact, the destruction of the temple that he can see, but they can't see, but they will know pretty soon that he was exactly right, that that prefigures the end of the world. What happens, what he's going to prophesy in chapter 13 and say, this is going to happen is also, he's going to talk a little bit about the end of the world. And when you read the book of Revelation, you realize, oh my goodness, 
That's exactly what happened. So let's jump in and look at the temple for a minute. This is a model of Herod's temple. Why is it a model? Because it got destroyed in 70 AD. There's been no temple, no Jewish temple since 70 AD. And there is not one now on the Temple Mount. But I thought I'd show you a couple things about this Temple Mount. This is a model of the old city of Jerusalem in the time of Jesus. This is what it looked like. And I realize that's a model, so you can't necessarily see the grandeur of the temple. But what happened was the temple was built by Solomon in about 970, roughly, B.C. So think almost 1,000 years before Jesus, he built this temple. And it's a, it's a glorious temple at the time. In 586 B.C., about 300 years later, the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, and they knocked the temple down. They destroyed the temple. They knocked down the walls of Jerusalem. Around 450 B.C., about 130 years later, uh, Nehemiah and Ezra, the, those are books in the Old Testament, they came back, and Nehemiah helped rebuild the wall, and Ezra helped rebuild the temple. They kind of did the best they could. They sort of refurbished it, but they didn't have much money. But at least they could offer sacrifices and try to serve God there. So from about 450 BC all the way down to almost Jesus' time, you've got a temple, but it's not anything to speak of. It's been destroyed. It's been refurbished, but nothing like the glory of Solomon's temple. Well, Herod the Great, who claimed to be a Jew but wasn't, but was the king of Judea under the Romans, now this is a little bit before Jesus was born, decided, you know what? I'm going to build a magnificent temple that's going to rival the temples in Rome. And so he did. And this is Herod's temple. If you read any scholarly work, this is second temple period. First temple, Solomon's, destroyed by the Babylonians. Second temple era, Jesus' time, destroyed by the Romans, has not been rebuilt to this day. Well, let me show you a little bit of this geography because this is really actually pretty interesting. I want you to get a feel for Herod just a little bit and I want you to kind of feel how magnificent this is. This is the old city of David right over here. I mean, there weren't all these uh, things in the time of David and Solomon. That's the old city. Under here, this is a hill. I don't know if you can see this, but I'm putting a hill right under where the temple is. Now, Solomon's temple, forget, and nothing else is there. It's like a little mountain, Mount Zion, right? And he, there's a smaller temple sitting like right on top of the hill. That's Solomon's temple, and it was pretty cool. So Herod comes along, and there's not much there. There's just a temple that's been refurbished on top of the hill. Herod says, I do not have anywhere near enough room on this little hill to build the magnificent temple to God that I'm thinking of building. Now, is he building a temple to God? Not really. He's building a temple to Herod, but it'll make the Jews happy to rebuild their temple. And he wants his city to, he was so rich, he was so powerful, but he wanted it to be a modern city. So let me show you what he did. This is pretty amazing. He decided that little hilltop is too small. So what he did was he built these retaining walls. These are retaining walls. They go all the way around, four sides. Built these retaining walls, and he put a bunch of arches underneath to hold the retaining wall up, and he put a big old platform. This platform, think of it as holding like 20 football fields. It is huge. So he took that small temple, he built this massive retaining wall 
built the arches underneath to support it. It is literally unbelievable. I'm not sure we could build this today. In fact, some of these stones, now I'm not to the temple yet, I'm just to the retaining wall. Some of the stones in this retaining wall, and it's really high, you'll see some pictures later and get a feel for it. There are stones in this retaining wall that some of the biggest ones, 37 feet long, six feet high, 15 feet deep. I mean, this thing is built to last and it's still there today. When I show you a picture today of the temple, what you're gonna see, you're not gonna see a temple on top, you're gonna see that platform and you're gonna see those retaining walls and they've been there for 2,000 years. That, the, some of those stones, the one that's 37 feet long, 15 feet deep, they're all 15 feet deep, and six feet high, weighs 1,200,000 pounds. And it's not on the bottom. It's not on the bottom layer. It's like 14 layers up. It weighs over a million pounds. I mean, this is an architectural and engineering marvel. And you can see that part of it today. Well, the temple was no less impressive. So he built this temple, and you can't, I know you can't see a lot of the temple right now, but it has got gold it is very tall. I'll give you a sense of how tall it is. It's like over 120 feet tall. This is a big temple. It's got beautiful stone. It's got gold all over it. It's got, everything is first class. He built a magnificent temple. Built these colonnades. Then of course there's all this area for people to gather, etc. and then they would make their sacrifices in the temple. But this temple, is amazing. So when they were walking out of the temple, they're walking, let me show you where they are. They're coming from in here, where only Jews can go, and they're walking out. And they're looking at this temple. And they are saying to him, look at this temple. Look at the size of these stones. This is amazing. And Jesus shocks them by saying, yeah, it's going to all be torn down. And they're like, what? Let me show you where they are when he finishes this. If you remember, he says, and then as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, they came and asked him opposite the temple, when are these things going to happen? Well, this is where he was. This is a modern day photo. This is what it looks like today. So this is the temple mount. I want to show you the uh, retaining walls. Let me change that. Excuse me. These are those retaining walls that we have seen. It goes even out of this picture, but it's all four sides. This whole thing up here, this is the platform on top. So we're looking at it kind of eye level. It's on top of a mountain. You go down into the Kidron Valley, you come up, and he is sitting on the Mount of Olives. When he's talking to the disciples, this is what he's looking at, except it doesn't have a mosque on it. It has the temple on it. So he's sitting here. Matter of fact, this little area is where we like to go when we're up there. It's in, obviously the Mount of Olives. They got a lot of olive trees. The nice little olive grove over here and they're great pictures of the Temple Mount. But those retaining walls are still Herod's retaining walls 2,000 years later. Well, obviously there are two mosques on top of this uh, place now. But uh, just to give you a thing, this mosque, this is the Dome of the Rock. The temple was about that tall. A little more than twice the height of the Dome of the Rock. And the Dome of the Rock is tall. I mean, it's magnificent piece of architecture. That's what the temple looked like. So imagine that. He's sitting there looking at this temple. This temple was so tall, when Herod was in Bethlehem, he could see it. 
I mean, it's, a, it's magnificent. I want you to get a feel for how magnificent it is. So he's sitting there with them, and they said, when are these things going to happen? And so the rest of chapter 13 is him answering that question. Now, he's going to tell them about the temple, but he's going to weave seamlessly in and out about the temple and the end of the world. Because if you think about it, I have a friend who likes to describe it this way, and this is a great way to think about it. If you are, sometimes when we drive into New Mexico and you hit the mountains and you could see them in the distance and you can see one mountain and beside it you see another mountain, well, when you get there, you realize, well, the mountain on the right is, we get there. And then you go, wait a minute, that other mountain isn't right beside it. It's 10 miles further on. Does that make sense? I mean, when you look at it, it looks like a mountain range. But when you get there, you realize, oh, wait, they're stacked up behind each other. And that's the way this is. He's looking into the future. He sees the destruction of Jerusalem, and he sees the end of the world. Those are very separated in time, but he sees them, and he sees all of the future, and he's going to talk about them like they're kind of put together a little bit. Uh, this another great picture of the Temple Mount. I'm trying to figure out. Why did I put this temple, this picture in here? But anyway, another good picture of the Temple Mount. It is, uh, again, you see the retaining wall here? That's the southern wall, southern steps. Then you've got the retaining wall, and of course the temple would have been huge right there. Again, we're, st we're still looking from the Mount of Olives on the other side. Well, when the Romans destroyed it, this is really interesting. There was a temple there, and when they destroyed and conquered Jerusalem, killed a bunch of Jews. I mean, it was a brutal siege. They besieged it. The, the, the uh, zealots, think Simon the Zealot, one of the disciples, well, his buddies, the zealots, started a uh, rebellion against Rome in 66. And at first, they kind of kicked out some of the Roman garrisons, but then Vespasian, the emperor at the time, comes marching in with his armies in about 67 AD, and he just starts destroying things. You, you just cannot stand up to the Roman armies. Well, he besieged Jerusalem. In other words, they had a big wall, so he put all his soldiers around it, left his son Titus to take the city. They besieged that city for three years. There was starvation, there was cannibalism, unbelievable bad circumstances there over that three-year period. But finally, they took it, and when they did, they destroyed it. And they literally took slaves, and they physically, they went to a lot of trouble, they physically pulled all of those stones down. There was not one stone left stacked on another. They completely demolished the temple. And then they shoved those big stones over to the edge of the retaining wall, I'm going to show you the other side, but think of it this way. Took all these stones and dropped them. Dropped them from a great height. They literally cleared that temple mount. There's no way you're going to rebuild this temple unless you want to bring those back up here. So they literally demolished it. And you can still see today. Here are a couple pictures. This is the retaining wall. And it actually goes down about 30 feet. It's been built up over history. So this thing is really tall. But look at these stones. Those are stones the Romans pushed off the top. And look how it buckled this street when those stones hit that street. They literally demolished, di disassembled it, and pushed the stones off to make sure the Jews were not going to be building a temple here anytime soon. 
Another picture, massive stones. This is the retaining wall. Again, it's huge from way up here, and they drop those things down onto this ancient street. And you can still see those stones stacked up there. They removed some of them to excavate, but they left a lot of those stones. Here's another good picture of one of the, the ways. Here's your retaining wall. Temple Mount's up here on the top. But look at all these stones. And look at this old road, and it just buckled it. One of the most interesting finds, I'm kind of rambling now, but this is really kind of interesting if you think about it. So this is what Jesus is talking about, and it's going to happen, just like he said. This is a stone. Look how nicely carved that stone is. It's actually one of the stones at the corner of the top, and it's got an inscription. It's a famous stone. It's called the trumpeter stone, and it is a cornerstone that was shoved off, but on it, it's written that this is where the trumpeter stands. And so what they would do is every day when it's time for the sacrifices, one of the Levites, think priests, would take the ram's horn and he would go up to this corner and he would blow the horn. He'd also do that when the Sabbath started. Remember for the Jews, Sabbath started at Friday at sundown. Well, when's sundown? When you hear that horn blow. And so he'd get up there and he'd blow the horn and he'd stand on that parapet right there at that corner. And it was inscribed where the trumpeter blows his horn. And they pushed that down and it was found down there on the road. So it's really interesting to me. Hopefully it's interesting to you. If not, I just wasted about 10 minutes of your time. It's really interesting to see Jesus prophesy that. And still today you can see the results of what he said was going to happen in 70 AD. So let me pause for a question there, and then we'll, we'll go on to the rest of what he has to say. Was the gold on the temple real, and is the gold that's there today real gold? Good question. On the temple, Herod's temple, the gold was real, and there was a lot of it. And, of course, the Romans stripped that off. They went into the temple treasury. They took the gold and the money out of that as well, and then they destroyed it. But, obviously, they stripped the gold off. On the Dome of the Rock... Uh, let me go back to that one. Here we go. The Dome of the Rock, which is a mosque, been there about a thousand years. So, I mean, way after the time of Jesus, obviously. The gold on top of that is real. It's thin. And it was given by uh, King Hussein of Jordan. And you might say, wow, he was really devout. Yeah, but he kind of wanted everybody else to know, all the other Arabs, like, I'm probably the most devout guy here. I'll pay and I'll put gold on it. And it is gold. It is a thin layer of gold that he paid to put on there. So, yes, these temples were magnificent. And the mosque is, is magnificent, but nothing compared to the temple that was there. Good question. Well, let's see what he says. They said, how are we going to know these things are going to happen? And Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I'm he, I'm the Messiah, I'm the second coming of Christ, and will deceive many people. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars... Don't be alarmed. These things have to happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and the kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and flogged, beaten in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. Think the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. Absolutely what happened to him. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, don't worry about what you're going to say. Just say what's given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. 
Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Well, first of all, what Jesus is saying, and he's looking, this is kind of a dual prophecy, which happens a lot in the Old Testament too, by the way. Before the time of the destruction of Jerusalem, when that temple's gonna get torn down, you're gonna see some great convulsions. Well, you certainly are, because the Romans are gonna roll in here, and for four years, they're gonna destroy this place. And it's brutal, there's famine, all kinds of things are happening. But also, he's looking forward to the end of the world. And if you've been through our Revelation study, you remember the tribulation, the time period where the Antichrist will oppress God's people, and as you read Revelation, there will be earthquakes, there will be cataclysmic events. In other words, the world is going to be convulsed into war. Not only people are convulsed, nature is being convulsed, if you will. So he's looking into the future and he sees the destruction of Jerusalem and he sees the end of the world. Interesting thing, there's a really good faith lesson here. First of all, all men will hate you because of me, and that's true. And if you think about it, that's already a little bit true in the sense that already in our culture, people who hold to biblical Christian beliefs are considered uh, to be out of step with the times, considered to be uh, hateful, uttering hate speech. Uh, this is the way it started, by the way, in the first century. This is exactly the way persecution started then as well. But my point is, he was right then in other words, his disciples were indeed persecuted for what they were preaching, not for what they were doing. They weren't breaking any laws. They're just out there preaching the good news of Jesus. I know sometimes we think, well, who would persecute you if you're out there preaching love? Read the newspaper. You're going to get persecuted because the gospel of Christ offends the world, because truth offends this world. Well, he was right then and he's right now. But he who stands firm or perseveres, is probably a better translation, who perseveres to the end will be saved. And I want you to think about this for a minute. This is just one of, kind of one of the points that really sticks out to me when I read this. You can persevere through persecution, and that's what our brothers and sisters in North Korea are doing, brothers and sisters in China, brothers and sisters in a certain part of Russia, etc. There are people who are persevering, in other words, being faithful, holding on to the truth of Jesus Christ, in the midst of being persecuted for it, arrested, harassed, sometimes killed for it. And so when he says, whoever holds firm to the end, to your faith, to be faithful, will be saved. And we think about it in that way, but I wanna give you another way that he means this as well. Because comfort is just as big a temptation as persecution. The church usually grows. I know this sounds crazy, but the church in China is really growing and it's persecuted. The church has always grown during persecution. Why? Because then you have to decide, do I really believe and am I really willing to surrender everything if necessary to Christ? That kind of commitment, that kind of pure faith is inspiring to people. And they say, you're willing to die for this. There must be something to it. Tell me more. And the church grows during persecution. During comfort, the church gets bigger, but it actually shrinks. Remember, Jesus was talking earlier in Mark about the parable of the, we call it the parable of the sower, but it's really the parable of the soil. You know, he sows the seed and falls on rocky ground, meaning a hard heart, 
no faith. Falls on really excited, but not very deep, no roots. You know, it just basically faith that fades away. But the one that fell and grew up into a plant, but it fell among the thorns. He tells this story. And he says, and it choked the plant out, so it never did, there were no tomatoes, there were no apples, there were no nothing on this plant. It didn't have any fruit. And when they, his disciples say, what in the world are you talking about? He said, that is where faith comes into your heart and you begin to follow Christ, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for things chokes out your faith. Well, he's not talking about persecution. He's talking about comfort. So when you read this idea of he who holds firm to his faith to the end will be saved. If you persevere, you'll be saved. That's not just talking about persecution. It's also talking about you and me in our comfort. Will we hold on to our faith when we're comfortable? And I would argue in some ways it's harder to hold on to your faith when you're comfortable. It's really hard not to rely on myself or my money or my security or whatever it may be. Persecution, everything gets stripped away and you find out pretty fast, do you have faith or not? Comfort, you get the illusion of faith if you aren't careful. I've been there. It's like, you know, I think I've got faith until something happens and I realize I do not have faith. I was an illusion. I was too comfortable. But this is just a powerful verse. I won't spend any more time on it, but I want you to think about that. Perseverance doesn't just mean Christians in China. It also means Christians in America. We're just persevering through some different things. So he goes on. He says, now when you see... The abomination that causes desolation, that is an interesting phrase, we'll talk about it in just a minute. Standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea run away. Let no one on the roof of his house go down or enter his house to take anything. Let no one in the field go back to get his coat. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning of time when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, the chosen, he will shorten those days. And at that time, if anyone says to you, look, the Christ is here, or look, there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs, think anti-Christ. False Christs and false prophets, think the false prophet, uh, in the book of Revelation, will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that's possible. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. In those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect, his chosen, from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Well, that's pretty apocalyptic. That's pretty cryptic. There, he's clearly, in my view, moved on from the fall of uh, Jerusalem, and he's, this sounds so much like the tribulation period in the book of Revelation. Sounds a great deal like that. But there are two interesting things here. First, I want to talk about the abomination that causes desolation. Take you all the way back to Daniel. Uh, actually, I guess I'm talking about him coming uh, in the clouds first. Sorry about that. Uh, so the, both of these ideas, the Son of Man coming in the clouds 
and the abomination that causes desolation. So let's do the Son of Man coming in the clouds. That idea goes back a long time. Daniel's writing, think of this, probably about 550 B.C. That's a rough number, but it's within 50 years either way. About 550 B.C., so 550 years before Jesus, he's writing, and he sees this vision. In my vision I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, in other words, the Messiah, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, that's God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So this idea of the Son of Man coming, Daniel is seeing a vision of this happening. In the book of Revelation, you're also going to see this vision, but first, let me skip to the New Testament. This is Paul writing in 1 Thessalonians, and they're saying to him, what's the end of the world going to look like? And Paul says this, brothers, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who've died or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring Jesus with Jesus those who have died. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left to the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together. This is where you get the idea of rapture. This word in Latin is rapture together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So what you see happening here is the idea of Jesus saying a couple things are going to happen. When the abomination that causes desolation happens, you will know that the end is near. If you go to the book of Revelation, the idea of the abomination that causes desolation is happening, most people think this is going to happen in the middle of the seven-year tribulation. Now, some people don't see Revelation that way, but they still believe this is quite true. They just don't necessarily see that timetable. But for this lesson, let's just stick with the premillennialists here. So seven years in the middle, the Antichrist is going to set up an altar to himself in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, and he's going to just defile it by having this uh, abomination on top of the temple. And when that happens, the false prophet's going to get everybody to worship him, right? And so he's going to become the new Christ, and he is an antichrist. And so what he's prophesying, he says, when that happens, he said, bad things are going to happen because the next three and a half years, remember it's in the middle of that seven years, is called the Great Tribulation, huge persecution for anyone who believes in Christ at that time. So this idea of being caught up in the air is one that you see in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and it seems to me that it's looking at the end of the world. Um, the other part, the abomination that causes desolation, let's go back to Daniel again, because Daniel's also seeing ahead. This actually came true at least twice, and I'll tell you the times that this came true, but Daniel's seeing a vision, chapter 12. This is literally the end of the book of Daniel. The great Michael, the great prince who protects your people, this is the archangel Michael, will arise and there'll be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of the world until then. 
I think we're looking at the tribulation at the end of time. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth, dead, will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame. Resurrection, like 1 Thessalonians. So I want you to see, these are written way apart, but all this is very consistent. He says, but Daniel, close up and seal the words of the scroll till the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Then Daniel, I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two people, one on one bank, one on the other of the river. And one of them said to the man in linen, who figures in this vision earlier, who was above the waters, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The man clothed in linen, who was above the waters, lifted his hand and he toward heaven. It will be for a time, times, and half a time. That is all over the book of Revelation. So a time is a year, times is two years, and half a time is half a year. That's three and a half years. If you break that down into days in the Jewish year, that's 1,290 days. Time, times, and half a time. One year, two years, and a half. Three and a half years. Well, go to the book of Revelation. You're going to see 1,290 days all over the place. You're going to see three and a half years. That second half of the tribulation. This is what Daniel's talking about. He says these things will be completed. And he said, what will be the outcome? He said, well, these things are, are stored up. But from the time the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation, the exact same words, will be 1,290 days. We won't go into the rest of the prophecy. It's really interesting, but kind of ties into our Revelation series more than this. What I want you to see is what Jesus is saying has already been mentioned. And in the book of Revelation, think about 100 A.D., after the temple's destroyed, John gets the vision and further fleshes out what that looks like at the end of time. And so the abomination that causes desolation, but that actually happened and gets prefigured in the sense of this. In the book of 1 Maccabees, if you're Catholic, it's in your Bible, Protestant, not in your Bible. But the book of 1 Maccabees is written uh, and looks back to Daniel. Daniel's writing, say 550, Maccabees think 168. So several hundred years later, Greeks come in trying to completely destroy the Jewish religion. It was brutal. The book of 1st and 2nd Maccabees detail it. The torture, they tried to stamp out Judaism. Well, one of the things that the Greek king, a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus IV did, he went into the temple. Think about it, 168, there's a temple there. And so he goes in the temple, and in 168, he sets up an altar to Zeus on the altar of God in the temple. And they, in 1 Maccabees, says that's the abomination that causes desolation. You have so, just so despoiled the temple of God. And so they had an uprising. And a lot of people thought Judas Maccabee was, hey, this is what Daniel was talking about. You're the Messiah. And they throw off the Greek rule for a while until the Romans show up and conquer everybody in sight. But it really looks a little bit like what Daniel said, and it sort of prefigures that. Fast forward to Jesus, after Jesus' time, when the Romans came in, and what sparked that rebellion in 66 AD, remember I told you Jesus has prophesied the temple will be destroyed, the zealots start thing, is because the emperor sets up altars in the temple to himself and to other gods. They go, that's the abomination that causes desolation. It's time for the Messiah to come. 
And so they have this great uprising. So it happened again. When you see in the book of Revelation, the third time, you see the Antichrist doing it. And at that point, the book of Revelation says, this is the end of the world. So it kind of gets prefigured, if you will, before that. Prophecy tends to come true more than once. So I put a lot of stuff together there. Let's see what questions you have. Do you think that the altar the Antichrist is setting up on the Temple Mount is literal or figurative? Well, is it literal or is it figurative? Okay, four basic views. We'll just do a mini, mini, mini Revelation primer. Four basic views. The book of Revelation in that portion, in this whole tribulation portion, all right, chapter 4 to chapter 19, that's the tribulation period, whatever you think that period is. There are several different views about that tribulation, but let me just give you two. One is very, I hate to use the word literal. I want to say it is uh, linear. And so what it says, it reads the book of Revelation and it says this happens, then this happens, then this happens. That view tends to think it's very literal, meaning a temple is being rebuilt and he looks like a hero. He makes a treaty, the Antichrist makes a treaty with Israel, then he breaks the treaty and puts his own altar in there. So that view of Revelation sees it as very literal. A more symbolic view of the book of Revelation, which is also Orthodox Christian, I'm not telling you anything crazy here, this is a really legitimate way to look at it because the book of Revelation is pretty symbolic, sees it as symbolic. It's not necessarily the Antichrist putting a specific statue or something up. It's the Antichrist making everybody worship him. So depending on your view of Revelation is whether that's, uh, it's, it's basically literally going to happen or it's symbolically going to happen. It's going to be fulfilled. They both believe this prophecy is true. It's just how is it going to be fulfilled. The people that think it's going to happen in that very literal sense are also kind of affiliated and watching the Jews because they think that at some point the Jews will uh, throw the Muslims off the Temple Mount, get rid of the Dome of the Rock, and rebuild the temple there. People that see it symbolically, not necessarily seeing that that has to happen. So there, there are a couple of different views of the book of Revelation. That's a great question. Okay, I have a few questions about what happens to you when you die. <laughs> Are you dead until the last trumpet calls, or are people in heaven before the second coming? And then um, the passage says, the dead are raised, some to everlasting life and some to shame, but don't Christians go immediately to Christ? Good question. What happens to you after you die is, I'm going to give you two points of view, and I know that's not satisfactory to you, but I'll tell you why Christians wrestle with this a little. First of all, Jesus isn't, and the New Testament isn't really, doesn't appear very interested to tell you all the details about this. The key is, seems to be, be faithful, persevere to the end, and you will be with God. Will it be now? Will it be later? I'm not even sure that's a reasonable question to ask God. I mean, if you are infinite and you're above time, not really sure. I think if you said, God, am I going to go to heaven now or am I going to go later? He'd go, yeah. He'd go, what, 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 which is it? He'd go, yeah. You know, I mean, this is the God that makes things that are not become what they are. In other words, God is a little outside time, but, but basically, as best we understand it, you get the scriptures talk about it, and by the way, they talk about it very comfortably, like, yep, you're there now, and nope, you're not there till then. 
I mean, the scriptures don't seem to have any argument or contradiction about it, but the passage that we looked at in 1 Thessalonians would lead you to the first point of view. You're not going to like this point of view, but it's the first point of view. Uh, and that is that when he says at that time when the trump sounds and the Lord comes in the air, that those who are dead will rise. Well, they're dead and they're sleeping. I mean, that's just what this is called. It's like sleep. You don't know any different. You die and your eyes close. The next thing you know, your eyes open and you see Jesus Christ. It may be a thousand years that passed. You don't know. It's like going to sleep at night. You wake up. You wonder, wonder what time it is, right? I don't know. I, I'm not conscious of that. So one of the ideas is the dead in Christ sleep, and they're raised to either judgment to punishment or judgment to heaven. Does that make sense? That's a really very straightforward way of understanding the Scriptures. That's what First Thessalonians is like. So that would mean that if you died... You will sleep until the final judgment and when people are raised and then people will be judged. Second point of view though, there are a few passages in the scripture that talk like you would go there now. For example, Paul says, I don't know whether it's better to die and be with the Lord or to stay here and be helpful to you. Well, what do you mean you're going to die and be with the Lord? Maybe that means you do go to heaven right then. So if people who think that and it might be true, uh, is they basically think that the dead in Christ, when you die and you are you have to be judged, right? It's not like you can go on a provisional. It's not like I'm hitting a provisional, all right? So basically you die, you go to heaven, God says, we haven't done judgment yet, but your chances look pretty good. But you're provisional until the end times, all right? I'm making a joke, but my point is, obviously some judgment has happened. A lot of people who think that, though, think that people who go to hell, that we condemn, stay. And then in Revelation chapter 20, what's called the great white throne judgment, it says books were opened, the dead were raised, and everyone is judged you know, by what the books have to say. They think that's not a judgment, go to heaven, go to hell. They think that's a condemnation. The only people rising there uh, are going to hell. So I'm getting this too complicated. But bottom line, there's reason to believe that perhaps Christians go directly to heaven. Passages seem a little stronger to me that perhaps you sleep. But I also honestly just think this is very difficult to understand eternity in very finite terms. And by the way, the scripture, there's no argument. They're like, yep, that's true. And yep, that's true. So it's just one of those things that the scripture doesn't, I think maybe it's sort of like God trying to say to us, you got a finite mind. You're not quite going to get this one. In other words, heaven and eternity is a little different than you think it is. All I know is it's going to be good. So those are the two points of view. The only thing I'm pretty sure of, and this is just an editorial comment, and this is an opinion, is if your loved ones go to heaven, I hope they are not looking down on us. Seriously, that could be a lot of heartbreak. So all I know about heaven is it's joyous beyond our belief, it's intimate beyond our belief to be with Christ whether that happens at the moment you die or the next instant in your awareness when you open your eyes at the end of time? Good question. Well, see, he goes on. So that's the abomination that causes desolation. So what he's doing is he's looking a little bit at the, at the destruction of Jerusalem, but he's answering a question they haven't even asked, and that is, I'm going to tell you how this whole thing ends. He goes on. He says, now learn this lesson from the fig tree. 
As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near, fig trees blooming. Even so, when you see these things I've told you, you know that it is near. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass away until these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. He's clearly talking about the end of time now. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. This is a beautiful way to wrap this up. He knows they don't understand. But as events unfold, you and I, have the, we have the bird's eye view of this. We can look back and say, you know what? Some of that is clearly telling them exactly what they asked. When will all those stones get knocked off one on top of the other? When will the temple be destroyed? And he begins to talk about that. But then he begins to talk for future generations. And he begins to talk about how this whole thing plays out. And the son of man coming in the air on the clouds. In other words, it will be hard, but watch, be faithful. I will come back for you. That's what he's telling him. He's telling that to generations to come. John, in 100 AD, probably 70 years after this conversation, is going to write the vision that he was given in Revelation that further fleshes out what Jesus said and confirms. That's exactly what will happen. There will be times of trials and tribulation, and the Son of Man will come on the clouds, and you will be raised to be with Christ forever. So it's really a very hopeful thing, but the main point I think he's making is this idea of stay faithful don't compromise. In other words, do not compromise with the present age, but stay faithful, keep watching, your master will come back for you. And not even death, this is the really powerful thing, not even death can keep that from happening. Not even death. If I die before Christ comes, that's not a problem. Christ has overcome death. Not even death will keep you from eternity with Christ. Wow, that's really powerful. One last lesson out of this. This is like, to me, this is a really interesting and powerful lesson. I want you to think about, now we're going to step back from this, and I want you just to think about what you know historically is true from the Bible and history. In the Old Testament, there are prophecies about the Messiah, about the Son of Man, about Jesus Christ coming. They were very confusing. You get these prophecies, and there are a lot of them, that say he is going to be a king like his father David. Of course, Jesus is descended through the line of David. He's going to be a king like David. He's going to be a conquering king. He will judge the nations. He will rule with a rod of iron. That doesn't mean he's mean. It just means he has all the authority. He will have a scepter. He will will be the king. And so he's going to be a conquering king who judges evil. And... At the same time, you have all these interesting prophecies. Isaiah 53 is probably the most uh, popular and the best known is, you know, he suffered our stripes. Like a lamb, he was led to slaughter. Men reviled him with what we deserved. This is called the suffering servant. It's clearly talking about the Messiah. 
He's going to come and he's going to take our place and he's going to be killed and he's going to bear all the wounds that we should have had. In other words, he's going to suffer for us. They could not reconcile those two pictures. And I don't blame them. I mean, is he a conquering king or is he a suffering servant? Is he going to rule the nations? Is he going to judge everybody? Is he going to destroy evil? Or is he going to get killed? Well, they couldn't figure this out. So the answer is brilliant, by the way, absolutely brilliant. And I mean, God is just brilliant. And not just, not just God, he's just really smart. And so what he does is all the people at that time, what are they looking for? The conquering king. I mean, they know the other passages, but what do they want? Conquering king. They need somebody to come in here and kick some Roman butt. Get these guys out of here. You know, they're evil. They're oppressing us. Go conquer them. We're waiting for the conquering king. Well, that was a problem, wasn't it? Jesus comes. You've seen in the Gospel of Mark, they're like, you can't be the Messiah. I mean, aren't you supposed to have an army? You know, aren't you? Remember they said Hosanna to the king when he came in? They treated him like royalty, like, you're here. You're the Messiah. You're going to be king. Well, he doesn't king. With seven days later, he's dead. They just could not wrap their head around this. They were expecting the conquering king, and they got the suffering servant. Does that make sense? They got the Messiah, but they, they were expecting and wanting the conquering king, but they got the suffering servant. Now I want to fast forward to today, because I think we do the same thing. If you think about it, we read the New Testament, and you read these passages where Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn, I came to save. I came to give my life as a ransom for many. I didn't come to be served, I came to serve, right? I mean, these are all things Jesus said, and we go, suffering servant. You're the Messiah, you're the suffering servant. Those foolish Pharisees, how could they have missed that? Here comes the suffering servant, he goes to the cross, he dies on the cross for us. Whoa, we are saved by grace, through faith. Praise the Lord, right? So now we start looking at the second coming because we're not done. Where's the conquering king? Hasn't happened. If you read the book of Revelation, you know what you find there? Warm, fuzzy, teddy bear Jesus? No. Do you see suffering servant? No. Let me just read you an interesting little excerpt. This is from, yeah, let's just do uh, Revelation 19. This is at the end, after all the tribulation. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Now, that's a conquering king. That's what I'm talking about. His eyes are like flames of fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Well, that's Jesus and the second coming. Listen, it goes on. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, following him on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has written this, King of kings and Lord of lords. And he goes on to do what? Destroy the armies of the earth arrayed against him by the word of his mouth. 
by the truth of the gospel. The beast, antichrist, are thrown into the lake of fire. Death, sin, are thrown into the lake of fire. Even Satan is destroyed before this story ends. That's the conquering king. Sometimes I think we have the suffering servant who saved us, and we look and we think, who's coming back? Who's coming back is the conquering king, not the suffering servant. He came to serve. He didn't come to judge. When he comes again, it will be to judge. It will be to make war on evil. It will be to set things right in this world. Does that make sense? This is starting to sound kind of like hellfire and brimstone-like here. But my point is I want you to think how brilliant this is all the way from the Old Testament. Conquering king, suffering servant. They wanted the conquering king. Thank the Lord we got the suffering servant who saved our souls. We look forward. What, what's coming? The conquering king who will set things right. That is the best news you could ever get if you're a follower of Christ. And it is the worst nightmare if you are not a follower of Christ. And that's why God is patient and gives us time to take the love of Jesus Christ and the good news of Jesus Christ into this world. Make sense? So, hope you don't have nightmares tonight, but that's kind of what's going to happen. Hey, next week, we'll finish this out, and literally, Mark goes just in a couple of chapters through uh, the arrest and the crucifixion and the resurrection with a couple of interesting twists. So, I'll see you next week.